your eye on the prize that counts Projects and paychecks in unheard of amounts To dwell on what's missing could drive a guy berserk So remember what you have, man A girl you adore, a girl you wait for And your work, and your work Your work Plop a wall in here, drop another wall right here Master brick, enclosing it, nothing left Exposing it to heat Cada bing, cada bang It's easy street Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 16th, a cold one here in New York, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna has written about theater for many publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, HowlRound. She's a member of the League of Professional Theater Women and the Drama Desk and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Also, uh, Peter is on the road today, but Peter Felicia is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Uh, At the end of the broadcast, we did pre-record his trivia, so we will be getting the answer to last week's trivia and the trivia for next week. With us today, we have a very special guest, Ricky Ian Gordon. Ricky's music spans art, song, opera, and musical theater. His songs have been performed and recorded by such internationally renowned singers as Renee Fleming, Dawn Upshaw, Nathan Gunn, Kelly O'Hara, Audra McDonald, Kristen Chenoweth, Andrea Markovici, Halloran Blackwell, and Betty Buckley. In the next few weeks, we can see two of his new works being presented here in New York City. Intimate Apparel with playwright Lynn Nottage, commissioned by New York City's Metropolitan Opera and the Lincoln Center Theater, being presented at Lincoln Center, and The Garden of Fiendsy Cantinis at the National Yiddish Theater Folksbena. So, Ricky, welcome to Broadway Radio. Thanks for uh, stopping by and saying hello on a Sunday morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very, very busy these days. You have uh, an opening of an opera uh, (laughs) over over at Lincoln Center, uh, Intimate Apparel, and uh, you also have a a show happening that you're working on down at uh, the Folks Bene uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage. And so. Another opera, another Garden of the Fiendsy Continues. Oh, my goodness. So uh, tell us about uh, how you got involved with Intimate Apparel to start. Um, I was the in 2007, I did an opera for Minnesota Opera called The Grapes of Rats, Michael Corey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was at around that time, Peter Gelb was starting that thing of, um, you know, issuing commissions to a lot of young writers and composers for new works. And it was the way it was going to work was that um, Peter Gelb, we should specify for those oh, who don't know, is, is the uh, opera. Yeah. the head of the Metropolitan Opera. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, the, the way it was going to work, it, it was it was an initiative that was going to happen with Lincoln Center Theater and they were going to commission works. And really, I mean, it was sort of to see it was like they were going fishing. Do you know what I mean? And it. <laughs> 
you would sort of write something and they would see, was it right for the Met? Was it right for the Lincoln Center Theater? Was it not right? You know what I mean? Um, but soon after um, we closed Grapes of Wrath, I got uh, a call about, about doing one of these. And I talked to Michael Corey and we were all set to do something um, about Adele Hugo, Victor Hugo's daughter, who... Um, mm-hmm. Truffaut made a movie about her called the, the story of Adele H. So it was my idea. I've always wanted to do something about her, but then really what happened was after grapes of wrath, Michael, it was sort of a triumph for both of us. And all of a sudden we were being asked to do a lot of stuff. And Michael said yes to a lot of stuff. And I said yes to a lot of stuff. And then at one point it just wasn't working out. He was too busy and I needed his attention more. And I, well, I fired him and I, <laughs> um, I went looking for, okay, what can I do? Because I really didn't want to lose this commission. So I, I knew Lynn Nottage because she had, she was on the OB committee when my Orpheus and Eurydice um, won an OB at Lincoln Center. And I, I liked her. I had met her a few times. So I went and read all of her plays and um I Facebooked her and I said, do you want to write an opera with me for the Met? And she mm-hmm. said, um, she said that she had f- always felt that intimate apparel was really an opera. Mm. And um, I said, bingo, cause that's the one I want to do. So wow. it just started. And, and, you know, there were different steps, like for example, um, the Met and, you know, Peter Gelb and Andre Bishop of Lincoln Center Theater wanted to know how she would open the play up. You know, because uh, it, it was a very intimate play. And how would she, um, you know, things like if you were going to do it on the stage of the Met, how would you make it bigger? And Lynn is brilliant. And um, she had great ideas for how to expand it and open it up. And we had this great meeting at the Met and everyone was big green light thumbs up. And then what took a long time was um, Lynn had to obviously she had to boil her play down to a stock you know you to create a libretto out of a play a lot of what took her a while was to trust that the music tells the story do you know what I mean so each each draft of the libretto had less words until the third draft was stunning and she had finally gotten it and by gotten it, I don't mean to say like Lynn was thick and dumb and didn't. It's just, you know, you have this play with all of your favorite words. And and suddenly you really, you just, you have to say about a third of what you were saying and assume the music is going to be sure, yeah. next to thirds. So when she got it, she really got it. And I just flipped. And then I started working on it. And, um, you know, things like, the first the first workshop that we did at the Met, I had my computer with my MIDI files and I conducted from my computer and we had all these singers at desks at the Met. I mean, the whole process was so nutty, but somehow I was so, we were all so committed and Paul Cremo was the dramaturg at the Met and um, just, he was really helpful and Basically, all these different workshops, and then there came the moment when the Met and Lincoln Center sort of had to have the conversation about who should do it. And I'm really grateful. It ended up being the the Lincoln Center Theater. And, you know, 
a long time ago, Rudolf Bing from the Met, his fantasy was when Lincoln Center Theater was built, was that it would be a mini Met. Mm. Mm. And finally, that's what we're doing. It's the Met commissioned an opera with Lincoln Center Theater, and we're doing it at Lincoln Center. And so it's to me, it's sort of a privilege. Like if you come to see this, you're sitting in a 300 seat theater, but you're seeing a huge full opera. You know, Mm. it's it's very exciting. It's um, it feels like we're doing something for the first time in New York, you know, and it's the way I wrote it. I orchestrated it for two pianos um, and Michael Yergin, you know, it's Michael Yergin and Kathy Zuber and Jennifer Tipton. But Michael um, built these platforms into the set. So basically, it's like the two pianists and these 10 foot grand pianos and our conductor, Stephen Osgood, they're like in the piece. Um, It's like being at a salon. Mm. And, you know, it does take place in this sort of house, um, you know, a boarding house, a rooming house that Mrs. Dixon runs that houses, among other things, a lot of prostitutes in 1905 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So it's a very colorful journey, this opera. And Lynn's play is magnificent. She wrote it after her mother died, and she wrote it to memorialize her mother. Um, so it's a beautiful it, play. I'll, I'll never oh, forget it. It's you incredible, know, right? One of, one of the, you know, it's, it's so interesting. One of the effects of the pandemic, one of the effects uh, is that a, a lot of things are happening at once. Uh, that weren't supposed to. And uh, so this, uh, had you actually already started previews of Internet? Oh, yeah, we, had like, we were in almost three weeks into previews. And then on March 12th, 2020, we just, every theater in New York closed. And that mm-hmm. set, uh, whatever set there is, has basically been sitting there all that time. It's all been there. The costumes, the set, Jennifer's light setup. As a matter of fact, Eve Mark's um, sound design. You know, it's really interesting too, because we were talking about this, you guys, like we ran this show for almost three weeks for audiences. Then we went away for two years. So meanwhile, when I went back upstate, um, when we closed, I did rewrites of the opera simply because I had never watched an opera of mine for almost three weeks in front of an audience. You don't get to do that in the world of opera. It might take five years and millions of dollars to create (laughs) the Grapes of Wrath, but you get one dress rehearsal and then five performances. That's the opening. And critics come from all over the world. You've had one run of your opera and then they write about it everywhere in the world. So it is stressful. Meanwhile, we had all these previews. I go back upstate and rewrite them. We come back two years later Meanwhile, we rehearse every day. We're we're previewing now, but we're not even opening till the 31st. We're like never has will anything have been more rehearsed and than this opera. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and even today I was supposed to have lunch with my friend Jim Robinson, who's the artistic director of Opera Theater of St. Louis, and he's coming today. But Bart calls these meetings at like, you know, 12 to 2 every day. <laughs> and it's like Okay, we're just going to keep working. And, you know, I have to say it's astounding to see this piece. I don't think you will ever in your life see an opera directed this way with such attention to detail only because you just don't get the luxury of it. 
Right. You know, like you, if you do something at the Met and you're a director, you have the chorus twice, okay? You don't get to decide who everyone in the chorus is and what their backstory is. Mm-hmm. You know, you like, this is so detailed. I'm really excited for people to see it. And of course, I'm very proud of the score and the cast is magnificent. But I'm really, I really feel like people are going to be see, seeing something very special. You're living with uh, this opera for so long and this wow. this piece, this work. And as you just mentioned, you'd had two years off and you get to revisit it and rewrite stuff. But, you know, theater is a collaborative art. It, you know, how uh, were you like uh, getting on the phone with Lynn and, uh, and Barton saying, hey, what about this? What about that? Or Oh, yes. That, and uh, like I figured out things, you know, an example is when I went back upstate, there's this character, Mrs. Van Buren. If you know the play, she's she's the Upper East Side white woman in the play who hires Esther, the seamstress, to make her intimate apparel to try to lure her husband back into bed and, frankly, back into the marriage. So at one point, they had cut all these lines for Mrs. Van Buren that to save time, but I felt like those lines were too important and they belonged in the opera. So I took them and I rewrote them and I installed them over music that was already there and hadn't been cut. So things like that where I found ways to compress things, but to have important information that I thought was really important. Do you know what I mean? So it was, um, I, I also, I, I felt after watching it many times, I felt I can really jazz up those piano parts. I, I wanted the pianists to be busier and to have more fun. So I, I did a lot of work. It took me two months, you know. So, um, and I would call, I, would t- I talked to Lynn and Bart all the time anyway. I mean, first of all, by now they're my close friends. Second of all, Bart never stops. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. He is, if you want to know why he's good and if you've ever liked what he's done, he's just, he's one million percent committed. You know, he's just, he's just there. He, he'll, yesterday, all day long, we rehearsed, there are four letters from this character named George Armstrong in Act One. And Bart... We had this session yesterday. We rethought all the letters so that we could modulate them and so that just these four letters had a stronger story arc in the first act. And I can't tell you how different the show was last night. You know what I mean? Like, it's really, it's really incredible. I mean, it'll, I don't know if it'll ever happen to me again that you get to re rehearse, rethink revisit like this piece is such a living organism right now um by the time we open and but i try to tell people come whenever you want because it's it's always going to be ready it's just (laughs) always you know morphing um but it's it's so and i and also i don't think you'll ever see such nuanced detailed organic realistic performances from opera singers in this way simply because just they've had so much time to live with this piece. It's, uh, I was just going to ask you, uh, you know, uh, you, you've, 
talked a little bit about uh, how different this is uh, compared to your other uh, other works and the ability to uh, have such a lead time and an ability to think about it. Um, what on the flip side? What's the most uh, uh, crazy time frame that you have run run into when producing some of your work? Well, you know, really, I use Grapes of Wrath as an example mm-hmm. only because Grapes of Wrath, when we opened it, was almost a four-hour opera. It's it's immense. Okay, it is immense. It was such hard work. Uh, it took so long to write. It took two years to get the rights from the Steinbeck estate. And I knew, you know, we had one dress rehearsal, and then we're opening the next day. This is oh, wow. and and I knew that critics were coming from all over the world. I knew that it was pretty much the world's favorite book. You know, it was such an iconic literary masterpiece. I really like felt like I felt sick. I just felt like. This is either going to go, you know, of course you have to have the big dinner before the opera and it's 5 p.m. and you're having a dinner with hundreds of people that gave money to the opera. And you're thinking at 1130 tonight, this is either going to be good news or I'm finished because Mm. if this is a bomb, like, you know, as Ned Roram said, when you bomb with opera, it's an atomic bomb. (laughs) um, So I just knew like, "Mm, I hope tonight goes well. And, you know. Thank God it did. Like Jane Moss, who was my best friend, you know, she was the artistic director of Lincoln Center. And she called me the next day and she said, have you seen Musical America? I, and, you know, and I, of course I was like, no, why? You know, like, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> she, she, said, um, she said, well, they called it the Great American Opera. And, you know, that was great, you guys. It went well. Listen. As like everybody else, I have been revered and I have been reviled. Um, but in general, I would say grapes went really well. And but do I like that it had to happen that way? That that we couldn't even have five previews say and just keep watching it, or it, it's it's very scary and it's very exposed, and it happens with every opera. And you want to know something? And you know, critics love to come with their knives and forks and dine out on whatever you've done. And this is true. It's, it's just not, it's such a, an immense art form. I've been a composer my entire life. I cannot sit through a four hour opera and tell you what I heard and saw. Of you know course I mean? not. Like, I, have, I don't have the skills myself. So people come and, like, whatever. It's just really, really hard. At least now, Whatever people come and see and hear when they come to Intimate Apparel, I am making peace with. They are seeing the piece. They either like it or they don't. But it is not like it needed more time in the oven, okay? Well, I know that you uh, you, you then prepared a, um, a much uh, uh, an hour shorter, basically, version of Grapes of Wrath that was later done elsewhere, correct? Yes, and that went, that went really well. Grapes of Wrath has just had, it's a good story for me. I mean, even we did a big concert version of it at Carnegie Hall. Yes. With mm-hmm. Jane Fonda. And Grapes of Wrath is in the world and it gets done in 10 million different ways. Um, and it, you know, I'm grateful for it. It launched me, basically. Like, not that I wasn't, I mean, I think of Mr. Portantier. <laughs> um, so, 
<laughs> when when I did my um, Lincoln Center songbook, and Michael gave me like the most beautiful review that was ever written about this my Bright Eye Joy concert, Lincoln Center. But that was before anything, Michael. I mean, you know, I was emerging, but I hadn't done anything huge yet, you know. So it like. Great Zavrat was the first huge thing that was like put me on the map all over the world. Well, it's a beautiful opera. And uh, I, I remember I made you laugh years ago. Uh, uh, I don't know if you even remember this. I told you that I have the recording, which is gorgeous, uh, of, the, of the full version. Uh, and I, I told you that I had it. I, I alphabetize my operas, uh, my opera recordings uh, by composer and then by title within the composer. So I told you that you fit in right between uh, Gluck, uh, Orfeo and Eurydice, Eurydice and uh, uh, Gounod for Faust. And do you remember what you said? No, what did I say? You said, oh, that's great. I like those two guys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm fine with Gluck, Gordon, Gounod. <laughs> You're in with good company. I like that. I like yep. the sound of it. Yep. <laughs> I think Paris Opera. We should redo their exterior. Yes. So, um, Je- uh, Je- Jenna, Jenna, you had a question for uh, Ricky. Yes, I had wanted to ask. I, I sorry, uh, <laughs> backtracking a bit. Hi. Uh, I, I remember thinking way back when your musical "My Life with Albertine" was oh. sort of opera-esque and i remember describing it back in the day that it was not quite an operetta but it it seemed very different from the musicals of the early aughts and it felt like it was sort of an opera but not how would you describe your score for that show jen i'm really glad you asked about that because that was the turning point great my life with albertine changed my life and i'll tell you why yes because i'm going to be really honest here i thought that piece, for me, I was so proud of that piece. I thought it was like, when we made that piece, I thought this is one of the most beautiful things I will ever make. And it was, for Richard Nelson and I, it was our pay-in to Marcel Proust. It -hmm. was, it was, it represented a kind of really out there, like, you know, I grew up on Meredith Monk and on Stephen Sondheim and, my influences were very, you know, eclectic. And that strange musical was very much a sort of culmination of my world of influences. And um, I couldn't wait till we opened. And then I thought we were sort of battered. I, um, and I realized I don't belong in the musical theater in New York. That, that mm. was, the, um, that was mm. the turning point. Because I even remember one day opening like Michael Riedel's um, column in, in the post. And he talked about a bunch of critics sitting around. I really couldn't believe I read this. Um, talking about how deadly boring my life was. Oh, really? Was. Yes. And I, I want to tell you something. It devastated me. It made me ill, truly mm-hmm. ill. My sister was coming up from Florida that day to come see it, and I was ill. And I, I realized I, the expectations for the word musical in New York City are no longer appropriate for what I do, and I will not submit myself to that anymore. And that's when I got into the opera world. And in the opera world, I could do what I do. 
That's Ironically, I, I think it's fair to say maybe you disagree. I think that has changed significantly even since that time. Uh, perhaps there are, people are more open to different definitions of musicals now than they were even when you did My Life with Albertine. I, I mean, I wonder about that, Michael, but I hope so. But now I feel lucky because I feel like I went out into the world and I carved a place for myself that sits somewhere. And I'm not even sure if it's opera or musical, but I know it is what I do. And at this point, people know that. Do you mm. know what I mean? So I, Albertine forced me to do that. And thank God it was recorded. I am so, I mean, oh, Jenna, yeah. I have no idea what you thought of it, but I loved it. Me, I would say that it was, you know, it's, it was neither opera or musical or musical mu- or operetta. It's what I do. That was the quintessence of Ricky. The, the, I, I love know. the show. I saw it three times. Wow. Um, went back again and again. I got to see uh, Rena Strober go on for Emily oh. one mm. night. And that was, a, I had never seen her before. I became a huge fan right there. I mean, it was just a beautiful piece and it was so different from everything else that was that was on Broadway. I mean, late eight, late nineties, early aughts. It seemed like everyone was still adapting to the change rent brought to the theater. Yes. That yes, you could have very contemporary music, which is wonderful. I'm I'm certainly not trying to dismiss that. No, no, but I uh, love that there was this very classical piece as well, going in a very different direction from what everything else seemed to be at the time. And every time I went back, and this was before the CD was released, I just heard something different in the music. And I loved it. I thought it was such a beautiful piece. And I was hoping it would transfer and extend and extend. I was really sorry that it didn't. Oh, my God, nothing. Not like we were not, you know, nominated for any drama desks. No, it was it was like we didn't even happen. And, you know, what's really interesting, too, is um. It was, if you remember, it opened the new playwrights, right? And playwrights, they hadn't even figured out how to deal with the heat in that building. So <laughs> oh, no. 99 degrees in the theater every night, which really helped. You know, like people are uncomfortable and sitting there. Oh. I mean, I remember John Simon writing about that piece and not mentioning <laughs> the music. Not mentioning the oh, music. Oh, no. It was so painful. I don't think, I mean, I truly professionally that was just it was so excruciating but it uh, obviously it was the kind of pain that sets fire to you and and you know you're either going to get out of the business or you're going to change your life mm-hmm. and I changed my life and it's funny because you know one of the loves of my life is still Kelly O'Hara <laughs> and oh Kelly will always be we are so close because of that show, because we both felt like we were making the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, and her husband still, um, Greg always says that that's his favorite thing Kelly ever did. Wow. You know, it was a very, very poignant and profound time. And you know what I think too, Jenna, I think critics were really mad that you took their Proust and did whatever you did with it. That's if they read it. I don't think Michael Riedel read Proust, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, what, whatever, you know. All of that comes down to. But yeah, that was life-changing piece. And and as I say, neither classical nor not classical, just what I do. What was your favorite memory from doing the show? My favorite memory, uh, so, I'm so glad you asked it, Jenny, because I really have one. One day, 
Kelly and I, Brent, um, Brent Carver was sitting um, in the rehearsal room and he was sitting on like against the wall on the floor, just trying to memorize his lines. Well, Kelly and I um, came in and we said, Brent, is it okay if we um, go through some songs? And he said, of course. So we were sitting there and we, we went, we were working on If It Is True, the very last song that she, mm-hmm. you know, that, and um, we were done and Kelly and I were practically in tears and we just had this moment of like, I said, Kelly, I really feel like we're making something beautiful. And she said, we are. And Brent said, we are. And it was just this moment of camaraderie of like, we are doing something we're so proud of. And we were, we were just so happy. And oddly, you know, that's just one of those moments you can't duplicate, but you'll be bound to those people forever. Like Brent and I were friends until, you know, he died a couple of years ago. And Kelly and I will always be bound together because of Albertine. And Richard, Richard Nelson, we're very close. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know what to say about people like, um, like John Simon because, uh, you know, it's sort of like when you have um, a, a bid for a new work, uh, a contract or something, you you take out the best bid and the worst bid, you throw it out and you have to look in the middle there. Yes. But, <laughs> and I, I, I feel like John Simon often had one of those extreme, uh, extreme views, and I'm so sorry that he uh, overlooked a, a major work and things like that. But my life with Albertine has lived on in so many different ways and, and so many different, uh, productions. Uh, do you think that we'll ever get to see, uh, another New York production of it? I really, really, really hope so, James, but you know, I have, um, I have lost the bid on predicting, on predicting New York city. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what happens here? And I don't, try anymore i'm at this moment i'm really grateful whatever happens that i'm opening i don't really think there is a historical moment like this where a composer opened two brand new full-length operas okay well that's what i was in the same week okay (laughs) that's what i was alluding to before because that 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 was completely unplanned because intimate apparel was supposed to open a year and a half ago or right. two years ago or whenever that was. And, and, but, and yeah. it's same with Finzi Contini's. It was. Oh, to, oh, okay. But, yeah. We were going to do that then, but not like back to back. Right. <laughs> okay. So yes, you're right. They were both postponed and now they're happening in exactly the same time. <laughs> so it's like, Oh my God! <laughs> and again, you're working with Michael Corey, uh, yes. which is a wonderful partnership. Yeah, you didn't fire him this time. No, I didn't fire him <laughs> this time. And it's so funny because you know, you guys during the um, during the pandemic when I was up in the country, I wrote a memoir. I saw um, Jonathan Galassi at Farrah Strauss and Giroux bought something I was writing on, so writing about. So I. And I talk about, I, I had to tell Michael, Michael, you're a major character in my book. And I said, and that's good and bad. And, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I know I'm an asshole sometimes. So I was like, okay, good. As long as you know it. Because <laughs> he was then. <laughs> but he's brilliant and I love him. You know, guess what? Collaborations are tricky. And anyone who tells you they're not is lying. 
Well, relationships are trickier. If they weren't, we wouldn't have Broadway. You know. Yes. Yes. So uh, you're uh, alluding to the. uh, uh, I'm going to get the (laughs) name wrong again. National Yiddish. The Garden of the Fiends. He continues. But the National Yiddish Theater folks. Oh, Bene. Folks Beanie. Folks Beanie. It's like, no, Folks Beanie. Like B I N E, just Bina. Bina. National Idiot Theater, Folks Bina. Uh, and so uh, you're making your way uh, uptown and downtown, back and forth on the subway, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Like yesterday, I had to go to the orchestra, read for Fiends and Continues, and then fly uptown really quick because Bart was already mad at me for missing the morning session of Bart's morning session for intermittent apparel. And I have to do the same thing today after um, I talk to you guys. Now well, I have my- to, I have to ask an inside baseball question here. Okay. But- <laughs> um, you know, in, in the world of opera, the conductor is, is King in, right. in the world of theater. The director is King. So what happens when an opera happens in theater? <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. Um, Bart and our conductor, Stephen Osgood, thank God, really get along. And I would say they're the king and queen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure who's the queen. <laughs> they're, both they're both kings. But the thing is, um, they they really work in tandem. And it's quite, it's really beautiful. I mean, you know, Bart is a strange bird, you guys, like, I don't know if you know him, if you, if you had him on your show. We've had him on, yeah. Well, he is, he can seem like a million things, but he's also very vulnerable. He can be like, he's like a little boy. Like, this is Bart, okay? And this is the stuff people don't know about him. And if he heard this, he'd kill me. So don't <laughs> it. But okay. like, he's, you're sitting in a seat in the audience, observing the rehearsal, and Bart is directing a scene, Okay. And then every time he's done a new iteration of it, he comes back and looks at you like, is it okay? It's good. It's good, right? It's good. And <laughs> he's like a kid. Like yesterday, I just made fun of him. I was like, Bart, you're like a 12-year-old. Yes, you did good, Bart. And it's so <laughs> sweet because and on the other hand, he comes off as so he can almost seem arrogant. He's so successful. He's brilliant. But he's also like all of us. He's like just like a little kid who wants approval. Wow. <laughs> Michael, you were going to say something. I oh, just you. my funny little story is so I, I was so excited to finally get the uh, the press invite for Intimate Apparel. You know, I've been waiting for it for two years. Oh. <laughs> um, and and so I responded for the 27th and then. Two days later, I got the invite to the Garden of the Finzi Contini, oh, which, no. which opens the yeah. opens the same night. So I so I'm going to switch uh, intimate apparel. But the point is that the end of this month is for me is going to be all Ricky all the time. Oh, that's good, Michael. That's <laughs> as it should be. And I want yes. you to write one of those reviews again, Michael. Oh, I, want, I want one of those payins. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I only have an invite from the from 2020 from Nick over at Lincoln Center, so I have to get on him. Yeah. And you guys, it's the 31st is the opening night of Right. Barrel. Yeah. Oh, that's so, probably why. We'll get their invites next week. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I guess they're putting If you don't guess... call me, I'll make sure you get them. Okay. That works. <laughs> so, uh you are uh opening Two operas, and then are you going to take a break, or do you have other stuff in the hopper? I actually 
here's the here's the problem with the break thing. Um, is Lynn and I, as well as her daughter Ruby, just got a commission to write a new opera. Wow! Um, and we should point out that that Lynn has got a play, a musical, and an opera running at the same time. Yeah, Lynn's worse than me. She's totally she wins. <laughs> she wins on too many things happening at once. But so she. Um, I got us a commission for Opera Theater St. Louis, um, and her daughter Ruby is a beautiful writer, and we're all writing it together. And it's called This House. It's about a house in Harlem, and it's a little bit of a ghost story. So I have to do that because that premieres in 2024. And I just had lunch with my editor, Jonathan Galassi, on Monday and now I have to do my, he loved the draft I sent him. So now I have to do the, the rewrite. So really the shaping and sculpting, you know what I mean? So I have a lot of work to do. But what I want to do is open these operas and then go back upstate um, where I can just work. Um, but I do think, you know, like sometimes I think after this opera I'm doing with Lynn, the new one, you know, like, well, I still want to do this. It's hard. It's really like, it's, it's just physically hard. Writing an opera is not for the faint of heart. I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's hard. You know, if you're looking at a 40 page play and you think, oh, how am I going to set every single beat of this to music and make it right dramatically and beautiful musically and it's just hard. And you have to, you have to like, like by the time we got done with Grapes of Wrath, I felt like I needed to be hospitalized. I mean, you're basically processing that story every day of your life, 24 hours a day. And I'm going to tell you something, the Jodes did not have a happy time of it. <laughs> <laughs> when you're writing on new works, are, uh, are you, um, are you casting in your head of uh, people you wish you could do these roles? Oh, yeah, and especially that is one of the good things about when you start, you know, making a name for yourself is you start getting who you want, you know what I mean? And I, like, for example, with um, with this house, you'll see when you see Intimate Apparel, but there's a young singer in it named Justin Austin who's playing George, and I, I knew to ask for him for St. Louis, and there's, you know, we have, we're starting to get a cast together of people that I asked for, you know, Although it's it's also like if you see Intimate Apparel, this cast is so talented. I'd be fine about just writing for them for the rest of my life. And by the way, Garden of the Fiends and Contini's unbelievable cast. And I'm really excited about that, too. We haven't talked a lot about it, but that piece has been roiling inside of me since I was 15. And that sounds like just from what little I've read about it, that, that it's it's quite quite another epic, isn't it? Oh, my God, it's so different. I mean, we're going from 1905 Lower East Side, New York, up the whorehouse to um, Mussolini, Italy, um, right before the Jews are deported to Auschwitz. And they were the last to be deported. And it's mm-hmm. um, it's an aristocratic, very beautiful Jewish family that believe because of their assimilation that they're impervious to what is happening politically and they are foolish, and they are not. And um, yeah. it's very much, it's very strange doing that opera because obviously to write an opera about the rises and the effects of autocracy in when I truly feel like any 
sentient being in the United States whose thinking has to see that something very corrosive is happening democratically in this country. Sure. And mm-hmm. this opera goes straight to the heart of it because Michael Corey, like Lynn, is brilliant and cannot write anything without tapping into the zeitgeist. And the Garden of the Finzi Continues is, is extremely pertinent to what's going on now, including NPR three days ago, did a huge yes. piece in the morning about the rise of anti-Semitism. Right, Jenna? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um it's it's a very poignant opera. And it's it the story is poignant because ultimately the story is about longing and unrequited love and you know and only the backdrop is catastrophe. But there's everything. There's a gay brother who's obsessed with his college roommate and the college roommate sleeps with his sister. And it's it's very rich. I don't it, it, the movie won an Academy Award in the early 70s um, for best foreign film by De Sica. And Michael and I read the book. Um, and it, it's just I really feel like since I saw the movie when I was 15 in East Rockaway, Long Island, I <laughs> knew I'm, I knew inside of me that story is going to live inside of me and come out somehow, somewhere, someday. And it did. It did. And it took a very long time, too. To, it took as long to write, if not longer, than um, Intimate Apparel. I'm glad you brought up East Rockaway. Uh, you're uh, a Long Island kid yes. uh, growing up in Oceanside. Did you grow up in Oceanside? I did not grow up in Oceanside, but I grew up on Long Island, and we used to travel to Oceanside all the time for various different school events and things like that. Ocean oh, High, really? Oceanside High School was was uh, known across the island for all the great things that they do. You got? Uh, did you get? Um, were you involved with the theater program or the arts programs at Oceanside? Or no? Now here's the thing, James. I grew up in Island Park, which is the town right before Oceanside. Ah. And my sisters all went to Oceanside High School. But then what happened was Oceanside and Island Park had a fight about who owned Long Island Lighting Company. Uh, and Island Park, Island Park won. So we were no longer allowed to go to Oceanside High School. So I went to West Hempstead High School. And of course, for one thing, I, I, I was perchick and fiddler on the roof. Of course. Uh. And, um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, but, um, and you know, we were, we're sort of a famous Long Island family because in, um, in the early 90s, there was a book about my family called Home Fires that was a big hit, that book. And um, so we were photographed a lot in Long Island and we were on all those TV shows like Good Morning America and mm-hmm. Charlie Rose. And So I'm somewhat a known Long Islander. Um, and then, by the way, the guy that wrote that book, Don Katz, after he wrote Home Fires, he went on to, to start Audible.com. So, oh, wow. He, he got so now he's rich. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Ricky, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. It's been wonderful chatting with you about intimate apparel and uh, your all your other work that's uh, that's out there. Uh, you have to put in a word for uh, for us with Lynn Nottage. We've been trying to get her on for years, and she, her schedule's just so crazy. Oh, really? Get her. I'll yeah. talk to her today. I'll tell her. I'll tell her it was fun. <laughs> All right, Ricky. Have a wonderful day, and we, uh, we'll talk with Thanks, you soon. You guys. Thanks for asking me. It was fun, okay? It was great talking See to you. See you at the end of the so month. Much. Yes. Okay, bye. 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 
right, Michael. So uh, coming up at 54 Below, we have uh, a number of things, and uh, not not to mention your thing, but that's like six months away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one thing that's coming up this Friday, um, the 21st at 7, is 54 Sings Liza. Mm-hmm celebrating her famous songs and this is a scott siegel presentation he's really um he's really doing a lot at that room and helping to keep it uh filled and and going uh just really really uh, valiant uh, valiant uh work that he's doing there and this one has uh you won't be surprised to hear that one of the stars is christine petty uh, (laughs) (laughs) who does the best liza of anyone in the world you know except her and even that's debatable uh, uh and then also uh in it are jeremy benton and leanne marie dobbs and albert neltrup who's a young talent that i uh, i know from wagner college actually and he's just starting out so i think that'll be a fun show i uh i am aware that liza was on this morning uh i guess while we were recording our podcast on CBS Sunday morning with Michael Feinstein, who's, uh, I guess, her best friend in the world. Uh, and uh, so if you didn't catch that on CBS Sunday morning uh, as it aired, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, all of that stuff is available pretty much almost immediately online afterwards, uh, or if not, the next day. So you can uh, look there and and you probably will find it easily enough. I definitely want to see uh what that's about i hope she's doing well uh she's turning 76 in march no uh and just in case that you know wow you need, you need to know that to uh to make <laughs> you feel old <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that is great we'll have a link to uh scott seal's show at uh feinstein's 54 below we should say feinstein's 54 below with michael feinstein on cbs <laughs> this morning with liza tying this all together and we've had michael on before so Michael Feinstein, we, yes. we always have Michael Portant here. Not that we take that for granted. But. Thank you. <laughs> so Jenna, you uh, in the past week or so, you've seen three virtual shows, Wit, Teen- Teenage Dick, and Clyde's, all of them very different. Uh, tell us about them. So, yeah, uh, I was really impressed that uh, three different shows, and two of which are ending their runs today, so perfect timing, uh, got to see them from my living room. The first one was the Seeing Place Theater's production of Margaret Edson's Wit, which was staged virtually via Zoom live from the performer's home. Uh, It's been at an actual theater, but for one night, they stayed home and used Zoom to record their performances, uh, or I guess not record, broadcast. Uh, I mean, it's particularly notable because Erin uh, Kronikin, who plays Vivian Baring, the heroine of the play, the professor of John Dunn's poetry, who is diagnosed with cancer in the play's opening scene, uh, is herself currently living with stage four metastatic breast cancer and is currently undergoing chemotherapy at Mount Sinai. Uh, Robin Friend, who plays uh, Baring's doctor, Jason Posner, is a testicular cancer survivor who was diagnosed and was treated last year. So the play felt very, very powerful, just knowing the backstories of these two performers who are have been living through what the characters are going through. Uh, Bryn Asha Walker directed the production and also appeared as Susie, uh, the nurse who shows bearing a lot more empathy than anyone else. And the production used Phoenix Lions projections as a background to great effect. Um, 
wit is a really good fit for Zoom productions because it's about people who are disconnected from one another, even when they need each other the most. Even the moments when the characters are talking with each other work really well because in a lot of the scenes, they really aren't connecting. They're talking at each other rather than with. Uh, and the script has a lot of soliloquies directed right at the audience. So keeping a camera on one performer for a long time works really well. Um, it, not knowing how theater is going to keep adapting and what's going to change if Zoom productions continue. And I kind of hope they do for a lot of reasons. I hope a lot of theater companies will consider WIT for their virtual productions. It works really well in that, uh, in that framework. I also got to see the Huntington Theater's Teenage Dick, which was captured live on stage in front of an audience uh, when the show was running in what uh, December and early January. Uh, I didn't get to see Mike Lou's play at the public when it ran, I think, what, four years ago? Five, five years? No, four or five years. So I was very excited to see the streaming production. This was more like what you would see on you know, a live from Lincoln Center broadcast, multiple cameras capturing the play from multiple angles. We could get close-ups of the actors. We could get shots of the audience reaction. It felt like a really great blend of theatrical and cinematic, and it was recorded live in front of an audience, so we got to feel like we we're in the crowd reacting with them. Uh, Lawrence von St I'm never going to be able to pronounce this name. <laughs> Forgive me. Stupnagel. Uh, Stup Stupnagel, I'm so sorry. I think that's right. I uh, Morris, think that's right. I apologize. You know, you'd think my, my German ancestors are growling at me right now for not pronouncing this right. Uh, came back to direct the, this production, Greg Mazgala and Shannon DeVito. Uh, repeated their roles from the public for this production. So since I missed that one, it was wonderful to finally get to see it. And uh, the show is available until the end of today, uh, Sunday, January 16th. So you still can get tickets on the Huntington's website. I really encourage that. And then the last one I saw was second stage uh, production of Lynn Nottage's Clydes. We were talking about Cl uh, Lynn Nottage just a few minutes ago. Uh, that was simulcast live. Uh, from second stage for the last two weeks of its run. And like the Huntington's, it was used a lot of different cameras, a lot of angles and close-ups, but the key difference here was it was live. This was not a pre-recorded, edited uh, recording. So that meant that little moments that would frequently be, you know, reshot or edited out of a traditionally recorded and edited film performance were included. Uh, Uzo Aduba, who's always wonderful, in one scene knocked a sandwich off the table onto the floor. <laughs> and the audience began chuckling. She bent down, picked it up, put it back on the plate, and walked back out to bring it to a patron of the restaurant where the play is set. <laughs> which got a huge reaction from the audience. It was a perfect <laughs> punctuation for the moment. And if it was, if she was directed to do that, I don't know, but it was not in the script I was sent. I immediately went looking to see, was that supposed to happen? <laughs> <laughs> so those little moments make live theater. It would have been a shame to lose such a great bit that got such a great audience reaction. Uh, I have no idea how much the simulcast cost second stage, how much time and effort went into making this broadcast possible, but it was worth it. It was really, really worth it. Uh, I wasn't able to get to see the show in person, so I'm really grateful it was made available virtually. 
I hope a lot more productions will follow suit because it, there are so many ways of filming shows, making them accessible. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, this week on Broadway, I was calling for more accessible theater. You know, all three of these productions were very effective in very different ways. And I'm just so thrilled to see some great productions without being in a crowd. I mean, we're in a bad wave of this pandemic. And obviously, I want the I want theater to continue. I want the all the people who are employed to still be earning a living. But I want this wave to die down quickly. Mm. And I don't want to be in a crowd right now. It really scares me. So this is a great way. And I paid money for each of these tickets to see them. I'm happy to pay to be able to see these shows and to make sure that everyone working on them can continue being employed as long as they're safe, as long as they're healthy. These And these productions are now available to people nationwide, if not worldwide. I'm not sure about restrictions on who has access. I mean, that's another key factor to making sure people can see these shows. I love the idea that somebody in Reading, Pennsylvania can be watching Clyde's and they don't have to road trip up to New York to see it. They can see it in the city where it takes place. It's these are wonderful developments. I'm glad the technology exists. I hope it continues expanding. And it was just wonderful that in one week I got to see such three such three very different variations on virtual theater. So whether it's you know, over Zoom with everyone isolated or whether it's pre-recorded or whether it's a live simulcast. These are all developments that I hope more theater companies will factor into their budgets and expand upon. I talked to, uh, when, when we were talking with Ricky, I asked him, you know, when you have the conductor versus the director, now you have the director versus the television director mm-hmm. who gets to make the fr- final decision there. <laughs> sure. So this is a uh, wonderful. Uh, Peter talked about wit last week and gave it a, a rave review as well. Oh, yes. And, oh, my um, God, yes. And it's then, a beautiful uh, production. And, uh, uh, you know, the Huntington Theater up in Boston um, uh, with Teenage Dick, uh, that's that's really wonderful. And Clyde's, so much has been uh, talked about, Lynn Nottage and Clyde's. Uh, I think that... Uh, we're going to have some jewels to look back at during these years of uh, of quarantine and, and COVID. So I, I can't say that it's all bad. We're going to have some really wonderful things to look back on. Yes. Well, just the very, like I said, the, the very nature of so many people by necessity having to stay home and having new technology, new possibilities that, yeah, I mean, God, the pandemic has been horrible. I don't want to pretend that anything that anything is good about it. But if this is what happens to make theater accessible to people who can't get to a an actual physical theater, that part is good. If people are recognizing that this is something that's possible, it's financially viable, it's uh, the logistics are possible, that part is good. And I hope that continues even God willing, the pandemic ends. God willing, this does not keep happening. There are no four waves. But yeah, I want people who can't get to a physical theater to still be able to participate and to see these productions. And I'm really hoping this drives further development. 
All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jennifer, Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Uh, also wanted to let everybody know that uh, all of Broadway Radio's uh, shows are available as transcripts. If you would like a transcript of the show, please email us at transcripts at broadwayradio.com and mention the episode uh, that you would like, and we will send that out to you. So, through the miracle of technology, we're going to have Peter <laughs> jump in here and give us the answer to last week's trivia. Do we have an answer to last week's trivia? We do. What character in a funny thing happened on the way the forum is scheduled to play Medea later that week? Ch- Tony Janicki was the first to answer incorrectly, <laughs> followed by Paul Witte, who answered incorrectly. Both assumed it's Domina, and who can blame them, given that she has the line just before that one, nothing that's Greek. Plenty of our other regulars, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadier, Joanna Abizi, Josh Israel, Jake. Greg Christensen, Dave Popple made the same understandable guess. Jack Leshner got a little closer. He wrote, according to Sondheim's public published lyrics for Comedy Tonight, a tall, buxom young woman is playing Medea later this week. So Jack guessed Philia. No, no. But the stage direction in the published hardcover script says that Pseudolus points to Gymnasia. Who knew? Well, Steve Bell, Steve Bell knew it, he said, because he played Pseudolus in college. Mm -hmm. Ian James Tweedy knew it, too, because of a production he did in college. See, there's nothing like a good college education. Kids (laughs) stay in school. A mind without musical theater trivia is a terrible thing to waste. So, oh, Mike Meany, Scott McHugh, Ed Glazier and Brad Van Grack got it, too. All right. This week's question. The word stubble appears in two different songs that were in two Tony winning scores. Each of those scores was written by one composer lyricist. However, these two songwriters once worked together, one writing music, one writing lyrics. So who are they? What are the names of the songs in which stubble appears? What are the musical that sported these songs? And what was the one musical on which they worked? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, so much to choose from for this week's musical moment. What, what have you got in store for us? Yeah, I mean, just choosing from Ricky Gordon's over alone, uh, there, there is so much to choose for. Uh, our opening music was a song called A Beautiful Life from Dream True which is a, a sort of a, as Ricky said, he, you know, it's hard to pigeonhole what he does. I would say it's sort of a, maybe a cross between a song cycle and a musical, but it's got some beautiful stuff in it. And there's a wonderful recording of it. And um, Brian Darcy James is featured uh, as the, the lead vocalist in that cut that you heard at the opening of the podcast today. Um, and uh, in a very different role from Officer Krupke, <laughs> who he plays in West Side Story. You know, Brian has such a beautiful voice. Um, 
as that as people who know him from Titanic and his other work certainly are aware. Uh, but there are probably a lot of people who who don't know what a great voice he has. So uh, here's recorded evidence of it. And our closing music, uh, I, I thought it was I actually uh, Ricky mentioned this song specifically, uh, but I picked it uh, before he, he, we recorded our interview. So I didn't know he was going to mention it. And it's called If This Is True from, oh, yes. yeah, from My Life with Albertine. Uh, we didn't really focus on the fact that this was Kelly O'Hara's first lead. Um, and it was really quite something uh, uh, to be sitting there and experiencing that voice, you know, coming out of that beautiful person. I'm sure, Jenna, since you saw it three times, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, that you agree. Oh, absolutely. She was she was so great. To, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of the word. I need more coffee. She was wonderful. I'll just say that. Uh, that's not quite the right word. Uh, she did such a beautiful job with that role and just finding all kinds of nuances, going back to see how all the actors evolved and grew. This is the beauty of being able to go back and see shows multiple times and see the sure. little nuances that evolve. Well, I only saw it once live, but I, I was blown away by by her voice to hear that voice for the first time in a, in a, and in a very small theater. You know, yeah, uh, it was quite something. So, uh, again, there is happily a recording and uh, this is from that recording. So please enjoy Kelly O'Hara singing Ricky and Gordon's If This Is True. Transcendent. I think that was the word I was looking for. That's a great word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on behalf of Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. And if I die a song